You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Welcome to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Its purpose is to dissect and discuss horror films, both old and new. This current podcast, we're going to be looking at the Amityville Horror, which is celebrating 40 years since its cinematic release. So we've got to go and look at this. It's one of the the biggest and most talked about horror films ever, let alone the actual real events that it was based on, which was the most kind of media-focused uh, um, horror, horror hauntings ever put down and probably the most known at least in uh, American folklore um, in contemporary history even though it's now 40 years after the fact um, so it's a big big thing and, and, the, and the film itself made as I said a, a significant impact too before we get into that probably should introduce myself my name's Saul Muerte and I'm your lead surgeon and host for the podcast and I'm joined for this current episode by Oscar Jack. Welcome on board, Oscar. Get out! What? <laughs> Very nice to be here. Uh, we'll, we'll get out once we're done. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Cue my uh, uh, quizzical Rod Steiger look off into the yeah. distance as I'm... <laughs> what was that? Oh, it's hiding here. Um, <laughs> going to mop my brow. Fires. Mop my brow. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, welcome aboard, Oscar. Thank you for joining us on this, on this, and welcome back as well um, for the uh, podcast sessions. Absolute pleasure. Glad to be here. Glad to dig into this uh, this this film that ha- is like very interestingly planted amongst kind of in in seventies horror film and, yeah. and kind of going from sixties into this into the eighties and. It's 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 really interesting, especially rewatching it back. It's, yeah. yeah, I think there's lots to dig into. I I agree, and I and I think I was saying to this about about this to you offline as well. It's so rich and detailed, mm. and I was watching documentary after documentary and uh, behind the scenes interviews and stuff, and I was literally like falling down that rabbit hole mm. and and being really immersed in it because it's it's a really fascinating subject uh, partly I think mainly because it's it's based on on history in you know, a history these things the paranormal events you know has been debated timeless whether they're real or not um, but even the the uh, events preceding these the, the actual stuff that happened to the yeah. is, is is fascinating in itself and, yeah. and we'll touch on that in a second but um, before before we go into like the, the history of it and then um, the interpretation that the film took of those historical facts. Um, what do, do you remember when you first watched this movie? How how long ago was it? When was when did you kind of fir- first enter your sphere? I think my first entry into it was the two thousand and five remake with Ryan Reynolds in it. Yeah, um, which was like kind of crime. I was I was you know middle of high school. It was it was like perfectly pitched i was exactly the audience yeah you know with my group of uh, uh my uh cohorts all sitting down and, and screaming when a you know little girl <laughs> stands at the edge of the bed and I, I i distinctly actually remember 
uh, one of my friends, uh, she had a big bowl of caramel popcorn, and it in one of the moments she literally threw it. Oh my word! Classic. And it went, Everywhere it was incredible. I didn't actually realize that that was a real thing that happened. I that was <laughs> yeah, a cliche in of itself. Yeah, and you know, like my you know my friends couldn't look at the mirrors when they were going through their house. It yeah. it was like it was that kind of thing. So I feel like I I definitely dug a bit deeper at my local uh, video store. Uh, not too much longer. So I would have been about fifteen, sixteen when I like found the original and chucked it on and. It would have been definitely a part of the, you know, uh, 10, 10 DVDs, 10 weekly DVDs for like $6 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I definitely remember sitting down and certain images are really burnt into my brain. But then a, a few of them, it completely escaped my, my psyche. So it was really <laughs> nice revisiting it. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. Like I, I, I watched this many years ago. Um, and I kind of almost want to say it was one of the earlier earlier kind of horror films I would have watched, bar any of the universal horrors and the Hammer horrors, mm. which I kind of delved really quite into. Um, and um, I, but I I don't think I appreciated it to the degree that it was until uh, I discovered more about the historical kind of context with it, which to me I'm I get fascinated with like anything to do with the paranormal and you know, parapsychology and stuff. I, I, it just it triggers something in my mind, and I, and I just want to delve more into that kind of stuff and and really kind of scrutinize every minute detail. And uh, but that's just me. Um, but yeah, look, it's and I think that's why. Like when I even recently when I watched it ahead of the podcast, I just found myself kind of easily falling into it again and really looking at it and and um questioning stuff and and when you see these interviews with the Lutz family afterwards and you're, you're watching you're scrutinizing their faces to kind of really see if this if this stuff sure. is genuine or not you know like mm. uh there's a great documentary called my amityville horror which is on on the disc that i had which is basically kind of interviewing mainly interviewing daniel lutz the the eldest son of the family um, as you know, in a more modern, I mean, this is probably the DVD is probably like five or six years old now, but mm. um, but yeah, it was just interesting because this guy, whether the events happened or not, he genuinely believed that they did, and mm. you just kind of he's just from a psychological perspective, he's so fascinating to listen to and watch. And if anyone uh, wants to kind of know a bit more about this, I really, really recommend watching that documentary. I, I just thought it was really, really, really interesting. Because the other part to it as well, whilst all this stuff was unfolding, is uh, the Warrens went out there. So, you know, you know they've become famous from the Conjuring films more recently. Um, but they were also actively involved in, in that too. They kind of came along and kind of passed judgment on the, on the paranormal and uh you know and we're, 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 there was quite a lot of uh, uh paranormal investigators that were there at the time um yeah. after the fact who went to the house and because the Lutz family didn't actually when they left they didn't actually sell the house straight away and then right. that's there's a lot of question marks about you know it was this just kind of a media ploy on the part of yeah. of the father um 
but he he would never actually go into the house afterwards. He still he actually apparently didn't actually go back into the house, but he let the investigators go in and do what they needed to do. So yeah, interesting. I find that really really fascinating. Well, they've got that little. Is it at the end of the uh, the Conjuring? They have their little nod to the Amityville. Yeah, yeah, it hints, and I think that's very clever on James Wan's part because it's so it's so embedded in paranormal investigator investigators' uh, domain um, mm. and anything to do with uh, the paranormal. Uh, because it was such a publicised media event, I think it was actually a clever part on, as I said, James Wan's part to leave it alone and, yeah. and not go there and, and hint to it because it, it, yeah. it, you know, it serves as canon. And I think, yeah, I think some some people may argue that it would be interesting to see those guys go there, but I think personally, I think it's kind of nice that they didn't. I mean, who knows? They may well still do it. You know? Hey, I mean, with the rate that they're pumping out Conjuring films, oh, yeah. which is just pure insanity, uh, but I really kind of love it. I love... Uh, it, it's like, um, I don't know, I, I caught the uh, the John Wick 3. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ju- jumping off the horror band for a moment. And, no, that's cool. Uh, and, like, sitting that and kind of looking at Conjuring, I was just kind of like... I could really do with like eight John Wick movies, like I, you know, and, and kind of the same with the Conjuring films. I'm yeah, like, yeah. You know that that element of like uh, uh, the way that like eight the eighties did sequels. Yeah, where they just yeah. like like I like having like a box set where they're like fuck they made nine of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of it creates a really interesting, almost like a cross section of a tree. You know, you can yeah, see all of those rings, yeah. and it, it's nice. it's kind of really interesting to dig in. And you know, there's there's dips and there's there's peaks, and there's you know, yeah. you know, someone comes along and makes the eighth one the best one yet. <laughs> yeah, look, I, of... I I met I look, I, I'd have to lie if I said because I I was I was let down by uh, the nun. Um, mm. I didn't think that was a very good origin story for that. And you know the original Annabelle is questionable. Um, I really loved. I loved creation. I thought. Yeah. Uh, I, look, I. It was a. It did go through the the usual horror tropes. But then, like, there was. Some, like, I tell you what, there was a one. And I, I know we've deviated, but that's all cool. It's all part of the universe. Um, mm. But the, what, there was one shot that they did uh, the director did which was where uh, the little girl's under the under the stairs mm-hmm. and normally in horror films you have something jump out at you or jump to the side of you but this one actually pulled you away from, like it went backwards it was like the doll the doll was sitting there and suddenly it just went and out of shot you know went backwards mm. and it was a jump scare moment but it it broke that usual kind of Perspective that it made you sure. go, "Whoa, that was actually really smart and clever." I like what you did. It, so, yeah, it subverted your expectation. You're like, oh, yeah. what's, what's good? Yeah, this is a jump scare going to be happening here." Yeah, you've kind of seen most jump scares. Yeah, yeah. And I just was why, like, which is why they don't yeah. really work. No, <laughs> as they originally did. And like, and so look on that note, and coming back to um, watching this movie, uh, mm. the Annabelle Horror. I mean, I, I'm I'm sat at home watching it late at night. Um, I'm conscious that I've got my I've got kids and they're they're in bed and stuff. But they played with the volume a lot. 
like they just kept mm. jumping up with all the audio cuts suddenly just kind of went really loud and then back down again and and no it had nothing to do with my my tv setting um but i was just kind of watching that going oh that's interesting because that i can imagine if you're in a cinema that would have had that kind of impact but it just didn't it didn't on home viewing um yeah yeah i kind of jarred every time it did it um mm. but yeah yeah um and i know we're kind of loosely kind of jumping around a bit but i think probably is a good point to actually talk about the uh the composer of this film, yeah of this because often we kind of i i, I say we um, i kind of neglect to talk about the composer the the music and the scores in horror films which are so fundamental to um the actual storytelling kind of component of these films but interestingly like the guy the composer brought into this was and i'm gonna try and pronounce the name um lalo Schifrin, um and he was uh nominated for uh an, an academy award for the uh, best original score really for this yeah um oh, but he great. he also um he also worked uh, before he got into films, like he always wanted to do film scores, that was his kind of passion. But before he did that, he worked, he collaborated with Dizzy Gillespie in the jazz scene for for a while. Um, and because he was living in Italy at the time, and uh, did, he, they kind of crossed paths over in Italy, and then Dizzy invited him back to America to kind of tour with him and help with it because he was just really dug dug the composer uh, work, the composition work of Lalo's. Um, yeah. particularly in the jazz scene as I said um, so he came back and then and in conversation Dizzy said what do you want to do and you know what do you what do you want to work on and he said oh, I, I want to work in film scores and he's like well that's easy I can get you I can get you set up with that and then like the rest is history because he, he some of the stuff he worked on was uh, Dirty Harry uh, B- uh-huh. Bullet um, Enter the Dragon is in there um and I, did, am I mistaken that he also did the first and second Rush Hour? Oh, he may have done. I will. Go, I, I'll I, Google I that I was, while I was we're talking. I was looking through IMDb, and uh, I, I'm, I, I'm quite sure that I saw those on there. Which he, he may well have off. done, but like <laughs> just, just while I'm googling that and I'm talking, because to me the big thing for for me was that he did um, the theme to Mission Impossible. Right is is this dude? So like he's is you know and like oh, he's very wow. avant garde and you know as a lot of jazz composers are um, yeah. in in what he brought to the table. But like um, yeah, like absolutely. Um, guy was a genius, you know, with the, some of the stuff he worked on. And I think I seem to remember, and I, I was trying to track down where it was. I didn't write it down, but I seem to remember one of the extras was talking about. Oh. Um, him coming on set uh, to record the the music for this, and he just kind of brought in all these kind of glass tubes and stuff, and he was trying to work on on the sounds and stuff. Uh, and he, so he was very ex- exploratory in in the way he came through through this. And I've been studying um, in my last year. I studied a bit of um, of music composition, and he uh, something that he he entertained with for this particular film is is something called the intervals in music so it's it's a certain way that music's combined it so it doesn't quite normally like you work on like the first and the and the fifth kind of note apart are marry with each other 
So the intervals are, are the ones that are slightly at, at either side of those. Um, so it kind of jars a little bit. And you don't ever have that in Catholic music um, or Christian music because it's forbidden. Um, and so it became known as the devil's music. Right. And he deliberately played with that for the score yeah. for this to really, you know, heighten that because it does. It sounds odd. Uh, yeah, you know, my, and my first kind of uh, when that when that theme first comes in the beginning, my kind of first reaction was like, kind of like Rosemary Baby, Rosemary's Baby kind of thing. This yeah. like lullaby-ish kind of uh, uh, eerie kind of stuff. And yes. with you, I mean saying that I don't know whether this is just because you said he was Italian but like like giallo influence oh, yes. like it's like especially with the way that the rest of the movie is it's it's you could almost transplant this and like stick it on like a, a Argento yeah flick. absolutely like, absolutely it, it's definitely got that kind of um yeah that, that that beautiful vibe I just I'm such a fan of this score it's me too. Me it's too. I, I was so really, much fun. Yeah, it was so it was so rich and like, you know, we were talking. I mean, I know it's again, it's become a bit, um, uh, again, a bit of a horror trope. But having kids kind of sing in that kind of angelic fashion. But mm-hmm. it was interesting to listen to his approach to it because he said, mm-hmm. he said like I I didn't want them kind of really like sounded like a choir. I I, I was trying to pull them back so it was almost really soft. And the way yeah. they're singing, and like when, and so when I re-listened to to the opening again, and you're just like, oh god, yeah, that's so good. It's yeah, I I do have this grand ambitions to kind of try and collect as many horror soundtracks as possible because I, I, I this is so rewarding and and rich when you listen to these. And, yeah, and and I that's why I made wanted to make a particular point of mentioning Lele because um, I think this this score among among. Uh, others are is probably one of the best horror scores going it's, yeah. it's so so good um cool and all that and we still haven't talked about the plot yet but hey um i, th- I think this is a thing I, I i started to really kind of love this film more and more i felt like it really played played a lot um but yeah look let's let's quickly look at um some of the history behind this first before we kind of then kind of look at where where the um where the film took us within that within that um, within the historical context um, so as I said like the initially like the house in question um, that we uh, that we that the Lutzes move into was the scene of a mass murder like um, uh, basically it was six members of one family uh, the, the address is 112 Ocean Avenue very important um, and it was a mass mass killing six members of one family all shot and killed uh, so mother and father two two daughters two brothers uh, two sons sorry um, and the person convicted of it was the remaining son essentially the eldest son whose name is Ronald DeFeo Jr. Um, and he's basically serving six life sentences for that crime. He basically came out and said that he didn't do it. Um, and then he admitted that he did, but he was he was told to do it by voices in, in the house. 
So there's always been this kind of illusion that there's something kind of sinister about the house and that he wasn't in control of his actions, supposedly. Mm. Which you can either believe or not. Um, yeah. But interestingly, like, so so this was in 1974 that this happened. Mm-hmm. and Wow, fast turnaround. Yeah, exactly, right? So the Lutzes moved in uh, around 1975, so almost a year, just slightly over a year after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, they were aware of what had happened there the the person that sold the house to them uh disclosed that information to them they which 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 just like slicing into the film itself yeah and and i'm and we'll you know we'll get there as we go but i love that detail is that you know like we've seen what's happened here yeah but we don't know whether they know and they know that they know. this happened all off screen. Yeah, they're like they're rationalizing it in a yeah. really realistic way. I feel like, uh, which is just like an element that I just love because I was just expecting like, basically, you know, I feel like this is this film itself has kind of brought so many cliches, but like, and that being one of them, like, yeah. oh, what's what's wrong with this place? Oh, people died here. It's like that, that's. <laughs> that's never something that happens it's like the luke i am your father like it's yeah, just, yeah. it's like a, a, a zeitgeisty kind of amalgamation of how we remember an element from from this piece of pop culture but yeah it's kind of done in a much classier like like good you know it's just good writing yeah i i 100 agree with you there i i and i it gave a sense of realism to yeah. their situation because they they're not like so this is the weird thing right it makes out that they don't have a lot of money mm. um, and the reason that it's a huge house it's a three story house with something like 14 rooms all up, something like that, I'm making that kind of up that might not be correct but because of what happened there it's, it's at a reduced cost and it's at a yeah. cost that they can afford So, and it's in a very wealthy area um mm. Um, so in amateurly, um, so it's an it's a place it's a an area that these this family would not necessarily be able to afford apparently. But what's yeah. interesting is that the guy that the George Lutz is the father. Um, it sounds like he had his own business. Yeah, and, and the there's a boathouse on site, right? And when I was reading stuff about it, that was one of the reasons that he was interested in doing it because he had two boats, right? And like, and I'm like, well, you can't be that hard done up if you've got not just one boat but two. Mm. Um, and and I, I think they only they only mentioned the one boat in the film, yeah, because he's like, oh, this will save me on on uh, like. I, I'm, I'm, and that's true costs. that's exactly right and that's what apparently George Lutz said like he said this yeah. it, it was one of the things that and you know that he was fascinated with because because he could save costs and docking costs and I'm just like I don't know I don't know I'm, I'm, I might be ignorant but to me to own a boat one boat is, is not cheap <laughs> um, let alone two um, but anyway like not that I'm going to say I'm judging the guy I, I don't know like <laughs> You know, who knows? It's just one of the things that made me go, "Oh, that's a bit." I find that a bit interesting. 
Um, and so actually what we might do is just because uh, because I'm talking about history, it might be a case of talking about where the, where the film fits into the historical bit as we go along, like we like yeah. you just did. I think that's a good good call. So just going back to the shooting, we do see elements of that in at the beginning. That's how it opens up. There's like lots yeah. of these kind of flashes of of oh, the gun going so on. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's such a strong, fantastic yeah opening. Like you know, you first you have that image of the house, and it's just going through this color shift of yeah. red to purple oh. to blue with that with that beautiful opening score coming through, and then yeah. it just cuts to like hard cuts the rain, the lightning. Yeah. And then that you see that house and the flash of one shot in one window. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then next one in the next house, and you know the shot of the the rifle straight at the camera. It's just like yeah. And, and the fact that you see you see these bullets go in. Yeah. It's not. It's it's incredibly graphic, but it's not like mm. gratuitous. It's not like it's 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 you know they, he doesn't like shoot ahead and it goes exploding on the no, wall. No, it's no, like, that's right. It, it's 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 a bit more realistic with how like gunshots work yeah yeah which is like it's just like such a shocking yeah kind of startling opening it really is and i and i like and i thought it was really well handled i thought and i and i and i like it was enough there to kind of hit hard you know and 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 have that kind of strong impact so that you kind of are a bit kind of taken aback at the beginning and I thought that was a yeah I, I really loved the opening the, I did have one quibble about it and that's only because I knew some stuff about the, the facts around the actual shooting right uh, okay. um, and it's because and this is what was and I, it's a shame they didn't dwell on it because it's one of the most eerie things about what actually happened because all six members of the family were lying on their stomach when they were shot Right. Right. And I know some people sleep in that position. Yeah. But it just had this yeah. thing like, and also like, so theoretically, like, if a guy's going around shooting up the house, uh. that would surely wake at least one of them up. Bearing in mind, it's a three story house. And uh. yes, I think the killings happened to, like, the two da- uh, daughters were killed on the same level as the mother and the father. Uh-huh. And then the two boys were killed on in the top floor, I think. Um, but, and I may get that wrong again because I think that might be the way the Lutz's family slept. So I may have got some of my facts muddled up there. But either way, like you kind of would think someone would have woken up and stirred with that, which has often been why there's been a lot of conversation around he how uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr. couldn't have worked alone because it would suggest that they could have all been in that position and someone else could have been in there and it, you know, have shot and killed these people rather mm. than it being a lone kind of gunman going around. And anyway, there's a lot. Anyway, back to the movie mm-hmm. where we see the mother and father shot, the father is lying on his back. So he's lying, you know, with his face upwards. So mm-hmm. I kind of, and that, sh- that took me out. Cause I was just like, ah, oh. Sure. Yeah, and all, and Try the other, yeah, I'm just like, sure. oh, like no, like it, it, it's eerie, like the fact. Anyway, and I know they weren't yeah. really dwelling on that too much, but the reason I also mention it is because apparently, um, according to George Lutz and Kathy Lutz, the mother and father, um, 
they all ended up starting to sleep in that position like all the kids were all starting to sleep on their stomachs and stuff and you know they could make that up but if you from a filmmaker's perspective there's something a bit eerie about that yeah that's true and that would would have been even though it's a very kind of slight thing that would have been quite interesting to have explored that in some way shape or form um totally but also that's interesting especially like with where the director Stuart Rosenberg who I think just does such an interesting like he does such a great job and like looking at his credits being like this guy was working you know, uh, on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour and yeah. and Twilight Zone, like he's a he came from like crime and thriller TV and um and uh, uh, he did uh, Cool Hands Luke and yeah. um uh, uh, and definitely seeing that like this movie is is a thriller yeah yeah the horror elements are kind of like I don't know there's just so much more atmosphere that that isn't necessarily horror it's just a, it's a really interesting tone that you know like i mean you know opposed to the remake which goes just full horror yeah, yeah and is like hard and fast with those scares and that that intense stuff whereas there are so many moments of of open of 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 uh like open and and and, and like just kind of happiness and joy like like once we cut through there and we drop out of like we we have no score we kind of have no music yeah and we see them kind of going through uh margot kidder i just am absolutely in love with yeah yeah in this movie she's like she's and she's uh, uh like some of my drawbacks with the film is that um like the kids aren't really particularly focused on at mm. all um and, and and even george himself kind of kind of gets sidelines apart but but Margot's just such a strong strong lead with yeah this. Like, she really she is. really she just has this ease and this like mm. this this beautiful natural natural way where you just kind of immediately buy these guys as a, yeah. as a real couple and yeah she's um so there's sorry I, I'm just gonna cut in a second because I do want to just yeah. me- go back to Rosenberg and say yeah um the guy is, was a was a directing genius in my book. Cool Hand Luke is one of my all time favorite films, um, which might sound strange coming from somebody that's podcasting about horror. Um, but I have to add, like we do talk about horror films, but I'm a cinephile mm. through and through. I, I love all shape and forms of 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 the celluloid film um, and the industry that goes with it. Um, and it, it I just so happen I'm talking about horror in particular for these podcasts um cool hand luke is an amazing amazing film and if you haven't watched it out there i so recommend something people go out there and watch it you know it's 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 so well told paul newman is is beyond brilliant in that film um and i wasn't really aware that rosenberg directed this film until i sat down just recently and his name popped up went holy fuck it's, <laughs> i didn't realize he did this um it makes sense because it's it's such a well crafted film, and and it, it feels it, this film has a real classic feel about it. Yeah, it does. There is a real like late fifties, like early sixties. Yeah, it's baked in 
it's baked into it. Yeah. It's 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 less kind of because uh, what this is end of the seventies that it's coming out. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely not like new wave Hollywood kind of stuff. It's like no. this is an this is an experienced like filmmaker. Yeah. Of uh, of the you know of the kind of more classic sense of the word. Yes. Yes, one hundred percent. Like James Brolin, the uh, the star in this as well, who um, plays George Lutz, uh, once said about uh, Rosenberg saying um, how he was very much an uh, an actor's director. You hear this kind of a lot sometimes. Mm. He said like, and I think uh, I'm not going to know the film off the top of my head, but he worked on um, prior to that. I want to say it was Capricorn One. Um, and I can't remember the director for that, but he was just talking about them in in contrast to one another. And the director for that film was very technical minded in the way he went about things. And that's often the case with directors. It's hard, it's hard to actually have someone that's bridges both, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, but in Rosenberg's case, he's very much an actor's director, and he said like. Um, Rosenberg once said, I just hired the good ones and let them run loose um, yeah. in reference to the actors. So it's kind of like, it, that's a testament to the way he works because he relies on the actors. He hires them because he knows they're good. And he's like, I'm, there's no point. I don't need to you know, mould these people. I trust in their talent to do that. And you can kind of see that happening in the film. Like, you know, um, there's one point where Brolin said he felt like he, when he watched it back, he hammed it up too much, um, which is the bit where he's like, uh, one of the many scenes, but I think it's towards the end where he's sitting in front of the fl- fireplace and his hair's oh, all yeah. and he goes, it's "I'm losing control," <laughs> and he go- and he said, "Yeah, I think I may have dulled that up a bit too much," um, but yeah, like I, I think that's kind of kind of really uh, really kind of cool. Um, but yeah, to go go back to Margot Kidder, like obviously for me, she's Lois Lane. Like you know, mm. uh, there's ne- never been a Lois Lane apart from her. She was my Lois Lane growing yeah. up, um, and and she was really likable in this film. Um, like she's like you said, incredibly warm, um, and you empathise with her more than anyone else in this journey. Yeah, that's uh, that's where that's where I think caring for like second it's secondary the kids mm. to her mm. we, we and we care more about them because, because she cares about them yeah that's right which 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 carries so much of that emotional weight yeah well like it's because like when um because Bro- broling he becomes unhinged quite quickly yeah um now part of that is I get the direction for that because if you again look at the historical context with it um, there's been a lot of talk about obviously there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not this stuff happened and some of the people just said that uh, some people have offered like parapsychologists have said that either if it did happen and this stuff was genuine then George Lutz was almost like a vessel for the evil to come forward so it's uh, almost like so he I guess that what they're trying to say is is either he was the master manipulator behind it all 
uh-huh. and orchestrated these things to then kind of make a massive scam essentially or like I said like he the there was something that the evil entity at that place was attracted to through him uh-huh. and it was through and that's why he arguably that's why he spirals down so quickly and uh-huh. A lot of the commentary after the fact seems to suggest that a lot of the um, possessions that took place were through George Lutz and the eldest son, Daniel Lutz, mm-hmm. um, which kind of, yeah, if again, if this stuff is true, kind of lends weight to if it is true, then that would make sense of the way everything kind of ties in with who has... Who we know has gone on record and kind of said stuff. Um, so it is kind of I find that kind of interesting. But like the the guy that wrote, going back to talking about the guy, uh, the how well written it is. One of the guys that wrote the, the guy that wrote this is a guy called Sander Storm. Um, he was actually a good friend of the um, the novelist of the Amateur right. Horror, Jay Anson. So Jay Anson, so just double back again Jay Anson wrote wrote the novel and I recommend people read it it kind of feels almost like um, almost like a biography in the way it's written so it's almost yeah. like these these things are but with a bit of flourish to it um, sure. so so as you're reading it it kind of feels like it's a factual retelling of what, what mm. took place Um and that was written. That was written and released about a year after all this stuff kind of came about. Like 1978, I want to say it came out. So like literally a year afterwards, then the film came out. So th- these things did happen really quite quickly. Yeah. Um, so Sander uh, um, Stern, who wrote wrote this, he was called in because, but on suggestion of Jay Anson, because the original. Um, the original script wasn't that good the, the, the studio and the studio bosses couldn't kind of work out why this wasn't working because this is a very powerful kind of stuff that's happened yeah. why can't they get this translated the, the, the onto sen- the screen and a, like a, the book itself was a sensation of yeah like yeah exactly it gripped a lot of a lot of people to- total page turner like everything yeah. you kind of see it's just like people reading it in one sitting kind of thing yeah well that's exactly and that's exactly what happened to Brolin as well like he mm. when he was his agent was the one that threw it in front of him and said like I need you to read this and he's just like I don't know and he said like he literally was sitting down reading it and he, he just stayed up all night and ploughed plowed through it and there's a weird kind of thing that happened apparently it was a hot night and he had his pants hanging up for something mm. whether he washed done a washing or something I don't know I'm not sure but for some reason his pants were hanging up and he got to this point in the book and uh, which was a bit of a moment um, and all of a sudden his pants just fell off from where they were hanging and he just it shook him in that instance and he's not saying something paranormal happened there but he was just mentioning it because the book had affected him so much mm. that in that moment when that happened he went I have to do this yeah um, it's, it, it, it yeah. affected him so much yeah that's right so anyway so going back to the, the, the play uh, the screenwriter he basically kind of went and looked at it and went, well, when you look at it, nothing really happens. Which is the which is the really tough thing about the haunted house. Yeah. Based on a true story, 
movie. Like, yeah, the fact that we're like, well, no one died. People no. got out of the house. Exactly. And he like, said, how do you make that cinematic and dramatic? And... Yeah, that's right. And he said, it's all suspense, and that's how yeah. you have to play it. It's 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 all these little things that set up, or along the way. And if you focus on that, then that's your way in, and that's basically what he did. And and what's interesting too is that, and this is what speaks to me, and maybe perhaps to you, but he's a he's a character writer. So everything mm. that he writes, um, everything that he writes, uh, he said the characters must be consistent. Everything comes out of the characters and their relationships with one another. Yeah. And he and he said the other really important thing about the way he told the story is that the stuff that happens to the family in the house are all individual experiences they're not shared so yeah. they're all they all happen in isolation with these 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 characters right and he said importantly to that is that they don't share their experiences with one another yeah because if and if, that and that you know everyone I, sees something fly off the shelf then yeah then you'd get We're out all of Kansas. On the same page. Yeah. yeah, then that's when you get out. That's right. And that's why he said, and that's the way you get around it. Like, people won't be shouting at the screen going, get the fuck out of the house. Because they're not, they're not discussing these things. They're all happening in isolation. So, therefore, they're not sharing it. It's only when they start to share these experiences that the things by that point have gotten so out of control and they're invested in this house. And they're like, how long, like, you know, and things have just gone nuts by this point. Um, so you kind of it kind of makes it a lot more believable, and I really liked that kind of approach. Um, interestingly, like the guy the, again on the same dude, the, the screenwriter, he did say when he went to see the film, he said it's not my favorite movie, um, and he goes, um, but he because he approached the story as almost a response to like cabin fever syndrome, and this right. is what's happening to the George Lutz character, and he yeah. said, and he didn't make a point of saying he felt like. Rolling jump from A to Z really quick. Yes, and, and he that, he would have he would have drawn that out a lot, a lot longer. Yeah. Well, it's 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 really it's it's for me. What's missing is the moment. Yeah. The moment where the switch in his head flicks, whereas it just kind of seems like, and, and the like the movie kind of gets around with that because there are time jumps yes. where we go from the first scene that it cuts to one year later cuts to one month later yeah, yeah. you know once they've, they've been in the house for a while it's like like that like a lot of times a lot of my notes as I'm watching this movie like a lot of issues that I have I kind of like write them off that yeah. on the next page of being like well this doesn't make sense but then coming back being like well, actually, that kind of justifies that. Element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is like that's 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 you know it's not spoon feeding you. No, no. Which I think is really good. There's all of these elements that are constantly being laid out for you, and and you're like, oh yeah, that makes <laughs> sense because I've seen that, yeah. but it hasn't been vocalized. No. Like you know, just jumping back, like like towards the end when when uh, when. George, uh, his business partner, is kind of spouting off to him in, in the bar towards the end. Yes. He says, you know, you marry this dame, uh, you, 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 you know, she's got kids, you buy a house, you know, you change religions. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's, like, I don't know, like, that feels just baked in. Yeah. Which is, it's, that's, like, for me, that, that one line of, like, you changed religions for her is, like, 
that's really good. Yeah. Um, that's, that's yeah. such a fun little thing. Otherwise, you know, like a less deft writer would have that be like, how would that be so heavy handed with yeah, that yeah, throughout? Yeah. It's like him looking at a Bible and he does look at the cross, but he, he says, they're unpacking. He says, where do you want to put this? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so this, yeah. This, this, this is the interesting theory and, and as well, because it does lay testament to the actual historical background to it. Because, uh, and I didn't touch on this too, but he he did marry into this family. So Kathy mm. did have three kids from a previous relationship. He's married into it. She is of Catholic faith. And he is of Methodist faith. So... But interestingly too, when you uh, when I watched the again to not to keep going on about it, but the Daniel Lutz doco that I was t- telling you about the at the front, and he's telling you about this stuff, and he said like, um, for somebody that claimed that he wasn't into the occult, as in his stepfather, he had a lot of books about the occult in the house, um, mm. so it was clearly some uh, an area that fascinated him. Um, there's and he said that he kind of pulled this he'd gone in and he pulled these books down and there was some stuff in it and he just found it really disturbing and he went and spoke to his mum about it and his mum just said you don't you don't need to touch that it doesn't concern you and he he articulated this back almost like he was a bit he was an adult so you kind of question well, when are you when are you having that conversation with him anyway but uh, with with his mum sorry um but apparently he just kind of said, well, yeah, it is of my interest when you've got, you, you're the one that's invited this guy into our house as part of our family. And yet he has all this stuff here. You know, why, you know, that, that if it's disturbing stuff, why does he have it? You know? So, um, again, it does throw a bit of shade in that, in his stepfather's direction, but, um, it just, that's what I'm saying this this whole thing is incredibly rich there's so much in there and again to go back to the writing you do have to commend um, Sandra Stern's work because he he's able to weave some of this quite rich stuff in quite effortlessly yeah um, you know and I think again that makes like the film really does and I often ask this at the end of the podcast but I do feel like it does still stand strong today it's a very strong film and it has a lot to do with the script, the performance from the actors, and the direction that's undertaken. It's a very good marriage of the three. They, um, yeah, they really work. They work hand in hand. Yeah. And you can just see with if, like, any weakness in the script is kind of covered by the acting yeah. and the direction of the film. Like, everything is kind of like, like as a really good film film should the weakness of each of those is covered by the strength of, of yes. each other element yes um so look i i realized that i'm having such fun talking through this stuff and i'm just i'm just looking at the time check and i know that we're like almost hitting 50 minutes and we haven't kind of gone through the plot so i'm thinking rather than going through the plot i might just kind of what i'm going to do is i'm going to go through the actual events that occurred mm-hmm. and uh like the historical events that occurred and we'll kind of loosely talk about how that kind of how sure. we, how we see that in the film, um, because I think that's because we kind of get the gist of it. So just in a nutshell, before we go into like the little bits, in a nutshell, so the Lutz family, as I said, moved into this place, um, and they are mother, uh, so mother of three kids, two sons and a younger daughter, 
um, and George Lutz is he's married into this family and they, and they move in. They last a total of just 28 days in the house before they go and leave because of all the events that supposedly occur while they're there. Um, I do find it interesting that it's 28 days purely because of 28 days later, the film, which makes me think, is that a nod to the fact that they spent 28 days in hell? I don't know. I could be maybe, completely maybe. wrong with that. I think that's a fun, that's a fun uh, line to kind of go down. I don't know. I, I could be making that up. I just think that's a bit of a coincidence. Anyway, um, but yeah, it is interesting that they lasted 28 days in there. So... Um, so let's let's just jump back. I've got a, a thing here about uh, where's okay. So some of the events that supposedly occurred, um, and I'm just, I am immediately going off Wikipedia for this. But um, so George would wake up around three fifteen every morning and go out to check the boathouse. Later he would learn that this was the estimated time of the DeFeo killings. This they do touch on this every time he uh, that when they do a nod to hit the clock and stuff it, it generally is around 3.15 that he is waking up Yeah. Um, and I've seen this before Like, and, uh, something we haven't touched on is I'm going to go on record and say this and I could be completely wrong but I think the Amateurville franchise has the most number of films attached to it of, the horror, of any other horror franchise there's something like 19 or 15 to 19 odd films made Jeez. Just, just on the Amityville horrors, and I think that says a lot, again, to how a it's in, it's embedded in the psyche. This, it's so yeah. rich with stuff. It's, and it's American folklore. It is. It really is. Yeah. Um, and every instance of it, they do touch on this three fifteen waking up kind of thing, even when it's not centered around George Lutz. <laughs> you know, mm. and you see it a lot in other horror films too. Where sure, they it's, always it's, tend to wake up at the same time every night, and and there, and there is an element of because uh, I think three a.m. is the witching hour. Yeah. yeah. So it, that's the that's the you know I like I mean myself I've had a bit of a, a moment of waking up at three a.m. Yeah. for the sound of of of, of uh, a very clear ringing bell, which may just be a you know. Is, uh, is this uh, in the early, new place or? <laughs> <laughs> no, this was it. This was at my old place. Okay, right. Which was a very old house. Yeah, it was, okay. Um, you know, wow. uh, over a hundred years old. This old, uh, the old part was a farmhouse, and yeah, it's. And I remembered like that's. I've kind of dug in a little bit of that. So anytime I see that, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like as as someone who is interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's always nice seeing those elements like put into movies because you're like, yeah, that's it. And, you know, you turn to the person next to you like. That's the witching hour. Yeah, you know, like yeah. That's, <laughs> it's that knowing nod. Yeah, exactly. I, I, there is there is something that freaks me out though, like about that though, because I hate waking up in the witching hour because it un, it unsettles me, and I'm like, I don't want to be awake now. I, sure. I, anything no, can fucking happen. happen. Like I nothing need to get happen. to sleep. Yeah. Like if it's any time around that, I don't care. <laughs> like yeah, it, I hate it. Anyway, that's just me and my my paranoia. Uh, but okay so let's let's look at something else so there uh, the house was plagued by swarms of flies despite the winter weather yes the first instant instance of that having the priest 
yeah. the uh, presumably the family priest, which we don't really we don't know why he's rocked up. We don't know why he's walked in. Yeah. But he walks up and he gets to to blessing the house. Yeah. We see those first uh, uh, those great extreme close ups of the flies. Yes. Um, as a recurring image, and yeah. we hear the voice get out, get, get out. out. Uh, yeah, all of which apparently happened. Um, so, which is which is interesting because, uh, and so we haven't, we can't. I briefly mentioned him at the beginning, but Rod Steiger is the other big mm. big player in this, and like he's, you know, even like uh, Mino Pellucci, who played one of the kids in it, did say like um, they were they were made incredibly aware that Rod Steiger was an important actor on set, mm. uh, even though he kind of kept himself very separate from everyone. And I did find that interesting too. A lot of the, uh, a lot of his scenes are very separate from the family. I yeah. want to say I don't remember them sharing on-screen time together. It's always over the phone. Uh, in conversation. Yeah, yeah. There's just the one bit where where she uh, she well, well every time she tries to talk to him, it just goes to static. Yeah, that's right. He, he's he's never able to communicate anything. No. To, to just kind of like pass on the message of like get out of there yeah, like, because he because he it seems that any holy figure him or her uh, uh, auntie her aunt, who is a yeah, nun yeah uh, like literally none of them can can stand to be in this this yeah. place they become sick they they become yeah. they literally are pushed out the door yeah which I I find interesting in itself like just looking at that as as a subject alone just what that means about the entity and it and it's it's so opposed to uh any kind of religious kind of uh presence being in there but to have that kind of power mm. to inflict i was gonna say bubonic plague <laughs> but like you know sure yeah uh, i mean it, it 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 you know they get the stigmata they get you know, like yeah, the blistering on the on the palm hands. And... Yeah, it's it's really it's biblical stuff um, mm. that is being acted on them, and it's I found that a really interesting take. Um, in reality, like when when we look at the historical kind of component to it, there's apparently the priest. He he was in, he was a, a member of the par- you know he ran the parish of which they were there. Kathy was insistent that the place got blessed before they moved in so he just coincidentally was free on the day that they moved in uh, but he was a busy guy and he didn't have a very strong time you know amount of time there and apparently just prior to that he was with some friends for lunch and they're also priests and they kind of mentioned to him you know that's the DeFeo kind of house where all those shootings took place and they they all kind of had this unsettling thing and he he himself said he was hesitant to go there was something kind of almost like he felt like he he shouldn't go to this place but he felt that he should and then he went and he supposedly um heard the words get out um and then he left and he he did confirm that he had these blisterings on his hands that occurred as well after the fact um, but he went he basically had he wasn't there that long because he had to meet up with his mum for dinner like he'd been invited to his mum's house for dinner and he turned up to his mum's house and 
uh, the mum basically said, you look sick, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I do feel a bit under the weather. And he went into the bathroom and he had like black circles around the bottom of his eyes. And so, and he tried to wash them off, but no, nothing was happening and like he couldn't understand it. So he said there were some, apparently he allegedly said that weird stuff did, did occur. Um, they play on it in the movie, obviously, by having this whole kind of backstory with him talking to other priests about getting, you know, someone over there to kind of, you know, do an exorcism or, or you know, get the family out here. And, and Rod Steiger, man, he hands it up, couldn't yeah. pop up for those, yeah. you know, those moments. It, yeah, the, 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 the priest v. priest yeah. battle, battle royale in <laughs> fighting the others is just, uh, is just, it's, it's really, it's very fun. It's very, you know, so you know, like someone in my parish needs help. <laughs> it's, That's it. It's, yeah, I mean, all he needs is you know Max von Sydow, uh, yeah, just rocking up in his hat. Like that's that's all he needs is a little yeah, uh, a little uh, backup exorcist backup. Um, and that's a that's yeah, he, the the whole thing for him it is just a mental breakdown. Yes. Yes. You know, they say, you know, you should go on vacation with, like, you know, they just think he's completely lost it. And then he ends up losing, you know, a bit more than the plot with, you know, the yeah. images of cracking statues and, and Timmy's oh, sights. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> he ends up looking like de- uh, uh, death from, uh, you know, the, 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 seventh, the Seventh Seal. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. With his big black hood. It's, it's like... Oh, that's right. And he gets blinded as well in this. Like, so they really yeah. take it to the extreme with this guy's character. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, blinded by his trying to stop this, whatever, this paranormal entity from destroying this family. Uh, I mean, it's all great, good fodder to, to kind of consume and watch and stuff. I do want to mention though that the um, so the uh, the uh, the opposing priest, the one that's kind of blocking his path, is uh, played by Murray Hamilton. Um, now he's a familiar figure in in films because he was, played Mister Robinson in The Graduate, uh, and probably most known for playing um, Mayor Larry Vaughan in the Jaws film. Uh, oh, oh right so the guy that kind of basically goes yeah I, we've got to keep the beaches open and you know. oh, talk about talk about typecasting <laughs> I know huh? I know <laughs> um, yeah oh that's it yeah but I kind of as soon as I saw him come out I went oh thank god that's the sheriff uh, the sheriff dude from George it, it, and that's that's set in Amity uh, Amity Yes, exactly. Yeah. Amity. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great double feature. And man. we come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Um, so, and let's kind of try and uh, let's look at some of the other bits. So, Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murders and yes. discovered the order oh. in which they occurred and the rooms where they took place. Lutz children also began sleeping on their stomachs in the same way that the dead bodies in the Defoe murders had been found. Um, the, her nightmare, yeah, where she walks in and sees George. Oh, at, yeah. At, the axe has gone into one of the kids, and yes. then he slams it into her own head. Is just is is the most horrific scene. Yeah, I agree. In it, in the whole film. Yeah, 
It, it I, I that it actually made me gasp. Yeah. I had I didn't remember it. I was like, oh no, my I, god, I, I was the same. Like, yeah. I didn't realize <laughs> one of the kids died. Yeah. I <laughs> know <laughs> I did the same thing. I went, what the fuck? Because again, I, yeah. it, it's been a long time since I've watched it, and and that's that's partly why it's, it's the beauty of going back to these things and rewatching them, particularly ones that really work like this. Um, but yeah, I kind of was sitting there and went, oh my god, what? And and then it's it's the whole dream thing. But ah, oh, yeah, and and her kind of just and there's a point there's there's another bit earlier on with the dream stuff where she does start shouting out loud, going, she sits and then shut the Yeah, yeah, and then just goes back to sleep, waking yeah. up George. And, yeah, <laughs> that's also that's that is I think is one of her highlights as well because that in, in of itself yeah. is terrifying, yes. and that just the look of pure like 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 the realization of pure evil on Margot's face yes of her sitting up and just bug-eyed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, out and then just going back it's just like it's just it's so chilling oh yeah absolutely and again like there's a we Margot is so good in this film and I feel I know we've mentioned that but she she's just proving her acting I mean yes she's just come yeah. off the back of Superman too so she's definitely uh, in the limelight at this point too and probably mm. wants to prove a point that she can kind of play this stuff she did say that she had fun in this film like making this film and I think that mm. kind of went and again maybe that goes back to um, um, to uh, Rosenberg's ha- handling of his actors to let them have fun and kind of explore their character and kind of let loose as he said and I mm. think maybe that's what's coming through in the way Kidder's performance is portrayed Um so the other thing is uh, interesting keeping on touch with Kathy though is apparently like her, she would feel a sensation as if being embraced in a loving manner by an unseen force um, that, that that doesn't get touched on in the film at all uh, no and that that is in of itself that's a terrifying image yeah <laughs> Juxtap- yeah the, the juxtaposition of, of, of it's like in a film with a great villain yeah, it's it's not scary when they're screaming at you. It's scary when they're caring. For yeah, you. well, this is and the thing. Sweet. So, and apparently, um, uh, or allegedly, I should say, uh, the the male members of the household had very different experiences from the female members of the household in the house. Mm. Uh, the males were tended to have a, a lot of aggressive stuff happening to them. Uh, aching point with a hand getting shot with the kid that mm. actually actually happened apparently and they couldn't prize the thing open uh, whereas the women of the house weren't they were almost enticed as if they uh, the presence wanted them to stay in the house yeah um, and we see that with the kid the girl the daughter because she's the one that allegedly befriends the Jody character uh, oh god um, yeah, sit, sitting in so, her own little rocking chair across yeah. from the empty rocking chair, rocking back and forth. <clears throat> yeah, which I have to say uh, at this point too is that, and I'm jumping around a bit on the on the, mm. the stuff that supposedly happened, um, but apparently this imaginary person was called Jodie, which they kind of stick to. Um, yeah. But it's described as uh, so her imaginary friend. Um, is described as a, as a demonic pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. Oh, wow. Um, 
Right. Which, which, which kind we of... own, the only inkling we get is yeah. when George is, he sees this pig-like yeah. figure, and that's, that's, like, that's what shows, like, the, this film, you know, it's based on the book, it's got all of this folklore yeah. kind of stuff going. It's got, he, he's able to do that and just, like, it's such a rich story that he's drawing from. Yeah. Which is which is where you feel so much of that depth. It's where you know a weaker film wouldn't have any of that depth, and you'd no. be like, "That doesn't make sense." But <laughs> this one, it just you, you kind of feel the the, the yeah. floor, the it, foundation it, of it. Exactly, and it's like it it it. it, it, it what am I trying to say? It's it would be uh, on paper it would sound absurd. Yeah. Um, and even in the film when it happens, it kind of you kind of go, "What the fuck." Yeah, it's they've got Razorback. Razorbacks on the second Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, was that a pig? Um, But interesting again. Again, to to talk about the doco with Daniel that's uh, that I mentioned again. um, He actually is the one that witnessed it. He's apparently, from his point of view, he actually saw through the window a demonic pig-looking figure, Um, Mm. and he says he has very strong memories of seeing this this thing. and I'm going to touch on something else as well. I'm going to deviate slightly from the list because he also said that he believed that his stepfather had the power of telekinesis and can actually move objects with his mind. Um, and he said he witnessed it happen, which again kind of makes you go, well, okay, if he supposedly had that power, did he then, was he then pulling the strings in the house and making things happen right well that, I mean that's a story that's a story that yeah. that's a movie I want to see <laughs> so I'm like gonna... that that aside kind of like whether you believe in telekinesis in itself just takes you in a completely different direction and, yeah. and para uh, psychologists sorry have kind of looked at that and said you've got to look at the fact that this is a 10 year old kid and mm. he's Witnessing, supposedly witnessing stuff that's happening in this house, which could have arguably been orchestrated by his parents, and then the movie comes out not long afterwards, and some of this stuff could have resonated in his mind too. He would have only been like eleven or twelve at the time. So how much mm. is that actually fact, and how much is, of it is fiction that is resonating in his mind that he be, then becomes he believes these things actually happened. Mm. Um, that's not for us to answer on this podcast. I'm just throwing that in as a as a little bit of a an interesting side note to the mental stability of what could potentially have been going on in the house. Um, okay, so um, George discovered a small hidden room around four feet by five feet behind the shelving in the basement. The walls were painted red, and the room did not appear in the blueprints in the house. The room came to be known as the Red Room. This room had a profound effect on their dog, Harry, who refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. Um, So this is, this is the, you know, they touch on this in the movie where he goes down into the basement and they, they have the uh, couple go down there and they start. His his business partner and the the wife or or the girl or or his girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yeah. And this, this is an element where, uh, as you're watching through it, the first thing, because I, I completely forgot. I was like, "What's what's wrong with this house? Like, yeah. why is it evil?" Yeah, and the yeah, first yeah. thing they throw out, it's like a, a, 
witchcraft, you know, some guy, Satanist from Salem moved down and I was like, oh, okay, so it's like witchcraft and all yeah, that. And yeah, yeah. Oh, it's actually it was that was land from the the Native American tribe, and they put all of their crazy people there, and and there's dead people buried here, and you're like, oh, and with, that's one of my moments where I'm like, oh, well, that's just that's just convoluted. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that's an extra level where you you don't really need it, but then you get to that, and you they break down the door, and and she's like, oh, it's a gate to hell. I was like, okay that justifies the other thing <laughs> that's right of, of course all of these things are going to be drawn to this space and, yeah that's know, right. she, and actually uh, uh, that when they break through that door that's when I feel like there's a, a, an extra shot of adrenaline and because I'm enjoying the films at so far as we're going along here but it is and the, the performances are so good and the, the writing is really strong yes. but it is taking its time like this movie is just shy of two hours yeah I know and, which... I, and I and on that I kind of I kind of because I remember when I was initially I think was going to watch it I was like oh, I'll probably be an hour and a half and I looked at the running time yeah. and I went oh it's two hours oh, okay uh, I didn't I don't remember it being that long mm. um, which which, I, which isn't like no. is kind of uh, uh, odd for, for, for what you, yeah. yeah, for what you uh, uh, suspect of this, uh, what you expect of this kind of film, yeah. Um, but like, it's still enjoyable. But yeah, once they break that down and the the, uh, the girlfriend gets possessed and is is like spouting off the history of this space and yeah, that's going right, wild yeah. and you know, like she's having a, you know, she first tries to open it, then George takes it and he 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 finishes opening it. It's just this kind of like frantic manic moment where you're like oh where a whole bunch of characters are experiencing one thing all together yeah and they all kind of see it but they're also you know george is so far down the line where uh he's being affected and as a protagonist as like a shared protagonist slash villain yeah it's it's an interesting thing because he's the one who first gets who first starts looking this stuff up he finds out about the history and and he's aware that something strange is happening in the house but he's he seems to be completely unaware of its effect on him yeah yeah he just he's seeing all of the external stuff but he's not aware of the fact that he's like becoming aggressive and yeah, becoming, yeah, you know, that's kind right. of staring off into the distance and being you know saying very kind of like loaded things that have kind of threatening yeah yeah um which is a strange handover because uh uh uh, you know the wife will end up kind of carrying that over but it's kind of two two separate uh researching elements where you could see that if this film was maybe to be more streamlined that would just be one of them yeah yeah which which would cut maybe like 20 minutes yeah you know you'd you'd combine that and but i think it like it it works it, it doesn't feel like a streamlined horror film it feels like it, it's it's kind of you know a bit higher than that yeah i agree i agree yeah uh and it definitely it definitely doesn't feel like the two hours like when you're watching it you do it does no. it does suck you in and pull you in on that journey and yeah the um i'm just um a, a massive sidetrack because i'm just thinking of james, james brolin um firstly how how good looking was james brolin man like oh man he's got he's he starts with the that um with the bg's haircut yeah yeah looks, 
fresh from a from an album cover. I know, huh? Um, but one of my one of the funniest moments is the bit where he's chopping wood in the in the in the backyard, and the and the mate turns up, and he does that whole kind of throws the axe, and it perfectly embeds itself into a tree trunk. But it's the look he gives his mate straight afterwards. It's like, yeah, I did that, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, dude, the guy's unhinged. That's hilarious. Um, and I just I cracked up at that point. I thought it was great. Um, okay, so. Um, all right, let's have a look at what else was supposedly in the mix. So, um, okay, so there were cold spots and odors of perfume and excrement in areas of the house where no wind drafts or piping would explain the source. They do kind of mention, briefly mention about um, uh, the house being cold, essentially. It's him, yeah. essentially, is the one that he's, goes. He's always moment. quite cold and. Yeah, and as she has a few moments where uh, you know the the real the realtor at the beginning is drafting points where the you know she has to gather her papers. Yeah, it's just this little moment, or Margot Kidder smells something in a in the kitchen That's which right. seems to pass. Yeah, and we kind of like they're, these they're not dwelled on. It's no, just kind of part. It's it's part of the tapestry. Yeah, yeah, which which it could get a kind of honky if. Uh, if if it was like if these became important plot points yes and, and, that, and that's not... the thing yeah you're exactly right because it's enough there to kind of just add to the to the like the, like you said the overall tapestry that's being laid out in front of us to uh, to to solidify these things that are happening and and they could easily be um as you said, dwelled on too greatly and become, you can imagine it as like a current feature would go, oh, we're going to have this big moment where, you know, they kind of remark on the fact that there's these cold spells that are happening and whatnot. But it, it doesn't, they're like little, it peppers throughout the whole, the whole film, yeah. which is really nicely done. Um, it is character, it is character focused. It, it really is. It yeah. really is. It's 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 not the supernatural driving it. It's it's yeah. these characters and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so in the early hours, uh, morning hours of Christmas Day, nineteen seventy-five, George looked looked up at the house after checking on the boathouse and saw Jodie standing behind Missy at her bedroom window. When he ran up to her room, he found her fast asleep with her small rocking chair slowly back and forth. Uh, that 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 rocking chair. Just... <laughs> Creepy ass. They don't mention like I I I'm, I don't think it. I think the whole babysitter scene as well is is a bit. Like the scene there is a bit made up. You know where she gets mm. shut in the closet and. Oh yeah, up. and and I, that's that's also one of the big like horror set pieces. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I think it's really affecting you know the. This, this, uh, you know, she's got the cat whisker uh, braces on. And... Yes, yeah, I know. God, that was a heart back. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> that's right. My cousin had one of those things. Bless her, far out. Like, how huge. far? How far we've come? With I know. Dental, dental surgery. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, okay, and then we also have um, George would wake up. Uh, George would wake up to the sound on the front door of the front door slamming he would race downstairs to find the dog sleeping soundly at the front door nobody else heard the sound although it was loud enough to wake the house um he would also hear what was described as a marching band turning up or what sounded like a clock radio playing not quite on frequency when he went downstairs the noise would cease 
none of that really they don't really touch on that I mean he does a lot of like stuff waking up and hear, like hearing stuff he'd go out and outside a lot wouldn't he and kind of mm. meander around outside um, this is interesting though George realised that he bore a strong resemblance to Ronald Defoe Jr um, and began drinking at the Witch's Brew the bar where Defoe was once a regular customer the place was called the Witch's Brew yeah it, it, it actually wasn't <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it was. I can't find my notes here, but it was actually the actual place was something else. Okay, uh, okay, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a that's a that that moment because we have the detective, yeah, who kind of remarks on it in a really kind of vague way. He's like, "Are you related to this guy?" But doesn't quite do it. And then you know, not too long after, he's at he's at the bar, and when the bartender like has like a physical reaction of being like oh god you like yeah you're sit, sitting right where he was and you yeah. look at the spitting image it's like that's such a like that's such a great reinforcement yeah that's right that's because right because the that first element is it's kind of offhand you know you can see he's affected by it by but by having the bartender having that be an involuntary yeah reaction you can just that just amps it up even more. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, it's not just a passing resemblance. There's, there's like parallels, like things are lining up in a in a unsettling way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's a, there's a couple of things I want to just add on that too. So James Brolin, um, apparently he he during during the film would actually deliberately stay up late, or, or if not all the way through the night, to kind of have that real jaded look. <sighs> Um, when he was on set um, and he apparently also went to uh, he did he went to bars and honed in on guys that looked dishevelled and kind of broken as they're propping up <laughs> the bar um, and kind of looked at the way they they would sit sitting and he often went and had conversations with them to kind of listen to their tales and this kind of uh, yeah very kind of looking at I guess um the way not that he was method but for some reason he just he was compelled to do that to kind of really get an understanding of of how uh, i guess uh, when you're at that ex- extreme where you're kind of so worn down by stuff and, and life yeah. and that. um and also that um he's uh with the whole kind of look alike the fact that he, apparently George looks look George Lutz looks like oh my god that's a tongue twister um, Ronald DeFeo Jr um, so they were trying to talk about how they were going to do that because they wanted the bit where obviously he breaks down the door uh, you know the door breaks down the wall and he, he sees, sees the, the, uh, the the great and powerful Oz yes that's right um, <laughs> which is supposed to be an image of Ronald DeFeo Jr um, who yeah. looks a bit like him and that's what he's seen in there and they said well how are we going to do this we've got to try and do something you know how, how are we going to just superimpose you in there um, and Brolin just said well you know I've got a brother he looks a lot like me um, and so they went oh really well bring him in let me have a look and they brought him in and they were like fuck yeah he looks the spit of you um, and they kind of said will you will you shoot this stuff with us and he was like yeah yeah I'll, I'll do it and so that's so it's his brother that we see in that shot not only that but when it came to the stunt stuff so the bit where we see him kind of fall through the floor later on mm. and into the pool of gloop, the black gloop, that's his brother too. Um, 
because right. they kind of said, well, like he said, he said, I'll do that. I don't mind doing the stunts. I can come in. I don't mind. <laughs> so yeah, <sighs> he basically is the brother, that, uh, James Brolin's brother, who comes in and does all the st- of James Brolin's stunt work in it, right. uh, which is kind of cool because they kind of did look a bit like each other. So whenever you see uh, Lutz in Black Loop, that's James Brolin's brother. Um, so a nice little kind of tidbit there. Um, mm. So uh, let's else. What else have we got there? When closing uh, Missy's window, which Missy said Jodie climbed out of, Kathy saw red glowing eyes facing back at her. That's mm. we see that in the film. Yep. Um, while in bed, go on. Sorry. Yeah, which which is I think for me that and the the kind of superimposed head yes. are the two effects. Yeah. That that, that where I'm like quite dated you know, yeah like yeah yeah like that don't quite hold up which whereas like a lot of this stuff does and especially the violence yeah any moment of violence throughout this movie even like when uh, uh josh brolin hits margot yeah um where he slaps her and like he, yeah that's like, such a great the action yeah. it really shows the directors like you can kind of see him coming from like crime crime yeah. television and crime TV but being able to have a bit more of a budget so like I don't know the, the action just it lands and you know yeah. there's blood and it's it's quite yeah. impactful and it's yeah. like Go on. quite shaking yeah, it's, yeah. It, it doesn't have like a, a terribly fake slap effect and no. you know which 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 sometimes would happen yeah and yeah that's right that's... those are the things you laugh at yeah uh, uh, looking back through those lenses and, yeah but but in here i think almost basically every point of violence is just chilling yeah on... even the even the smallest you know the smallest him getting his fingers jammed yeah you know like yeah. all of these moments there's always it's a, a tiny bit of blood yeah 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 that's it's, it you know like yeah. it's never gushing no, it's never exactly you know, shining <laughs> no so there's uh, on that uh, on the slap uh, moment um I do want to touch on that because uh, it's actually there's a couple of great elements that are at play there. Not only is the performance you know really compelling, um, but it's the way that it's edited the cut on the actual hit to then jump to then a change of POV where it's then shot from below and slightly at an angle, looking back up as Margot's head flicks round. Um, just does enough to jar you at the same point to really mm. land that impact and in a in a feel you feel that moment as well. Yeah, um, this guy this guy has shot a lot of punches. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of punches. Yeah. You can just see it. Yeah, he knows how to he knows how to he knows how to shoot that kind of violence. Absolutely, it was just framed so nicely, and as I said, the editing of it just yeah really. And I thought that at the time, I was like, wow, that was actually really well well put together. Um, okay so what else um, while in bed Kathy received red welts on her chest caused by an unseen force and was levitated two feet in the air we don't see that um, <laughs> uh, there are locked doors and windows in the house were damaged by an unseen force not really played on uh, oh, we get, the, we get the, the front door blowing over oh that's true sorry I beg your pardon yeah the big door the big door blowing blowing outwards that's right that's right towards the end um and and then he can't get out at the end too it's like the, yeah. the it wants to imprison him because it obviously when they escape he has to run back for the dog um 
he's he's a he's a good boy. He's a, he's good, a good boy. boy that, that that stepdad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Gotta get the dog. Um, okay, uh, cloven hoof prints attributed to an enormous pig appeared in the snow outside in the house, uh, January one, nineteen seventy six. That's been debunked because apparently on that date it didn't actually snow in Amityville. Mm. Um, so that's one of the ones that was been a bit. Yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, green gelatin-like slime oozed from walls in the hall and also from the keyhole of the playroom door in the attic. So no, they don't play with the green-like slime, but they definitely do it with the blood and play on that yeah. kind of component where the, the house is oozing blood out of every kind of crevice. Which, uh, which, yeah, like not just that, but uh, I'm like just kind of jumping ahead when. Oh, good, dude. When, when George is coming through in the climax and he, he's battering down that bathroom door, I had to, and like with the blood coming down, I had to Google, I was just like, when did The Shining come out? And it's the next year. Yeah, and yeah. And like, like the film itself, and I know the book was probably, you know, like strong in the, the zeitgeist itself. And yeah. um, I know that was, it was quite popular itself, but like, it was just kind of, it was really interesting being like, oh, this, it, <laughs> I, I had yeah. assumed I was like, oh, this is just this moment's straight up ripping, ripping off the, uh, ripping off the shining. Yeah, but but no, no, no one can lay that claim, <laughs> like that specific uh, yeah. uh, kind of claim onto it. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. There are some things that you just take for granted that you think that that's where it's come from, and you and that's why I do love going back again to say going back and revisiting these films because it does you kind of go oh wow, um, Anthony Yi who uh, who's often one of our fellow podcasters here actually watched Aliens before Alien, um, as his journey into that, and he was obviously blown away by Aliens. And when he then came around to watch Alien, he went, oh, okay, so that was already something that was a thing, um, you know, that was already in, embedded in, in the, uh, the the journey of, of Alien, of the Alien franchise that Cameron then used to his credit in a really good, in a powerful and effective way. Um, but it was interesting hearing Ant's version of that. And it's similar to this, like, like we're saying now, there are elements in movies like this that you just presume came uh, or was lifted from like the lights of The Shining and uh, no not to be the case <laughs> um, there is looking back at the list so a 12 inch crucifix hung in the living room by Kathy revolved until it was upside down and gave off a sour smell so we we do that and they even he even uses it doesn't he looks at the end uh, towards the end is using it yeah to try and they try they try and go around it. and bless the house themselves yeah and it flies out of his hand onto the ground that's right you know she starts getting uh, uh burns and and yeah um this is on the last night which is like there is this little framing device where we have these uh titles of jumps yes you know a uh, 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 one year one month uh and then as we're going along we get kind of date yes that's know. right it gets it's, it's almost now. like yeah. the scripts you know like yeah. because we have like it's seventh day yes uh, uh, Tuesday um, and uh, and the final one we get of that is the last night yes that's which right. is like so, which is so strong and it's such a good yeah 
moment because you've set up this um, this motif and like just in how we were talking about like it's it's hard with haunted house movies because nothing really happens you know the yeah uh, you know like no one dies but like it's all tension and that is just like is just like a bowling ball of tension yeah yeah that just like just tightens you all up when you're like oh my god this is this is where it all happens that's right and it's, and again it's credit to the uh, to the screenwriter as well i mean it's it's you you're narrowing that gap down deliberately and it becomes faster paced the uh, tension starts ranching up towards the end as well and yeah it's and that's what you want you want to you want to be given that kind of heightened sense of of uh of tension going on and and up in the states of the craziness and batshit stuff that's starting to happen inside the house when they do that um yeah, so apparently, uh, so also the bit where George trips over this four foot high China line ornament mm. actually did occur, um, and he did apparently find bite marks, bite marks on his ankles. Um, <laughs> says here later, later this line would reappear in the living room after George had moved it back upstairs into the sewing room, as in the China line. Um, right. So it's this kind of movement of stuff in the house. I mean, they didn't touch on the latter part of that, but they did touch on him kind of tripping over it and the and kind of looking like he's got this scratch marks and blood on his on his leg. Having having a, an intense uh, interior design impulse to roll out the carpet and set everything up. But, yeah, yeah. That's you it. know, she comes down and he's <laughs> just almost at peak. Yeah. Uh, crazy yeah he is is that that that's the point where he said that again to go back where Brolin said i think i may have overdone it there um that's the bit we're talking about um so um george saw kathy transform into an old woman of 90 the hair wild a shocking white the face a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines and saliva dripping from the toothless mouth uh, we do see we do not necessarily to that degree but we do see her look aged at one point towards the end and she, there's a bit where Margot's looking into the uh, into the camera isn't she and, uh, the camera, looking into the mirror um, and can see that she's physically looking a lot older and dishevelled and, and when he comes up when he's battering down the door and the kids are inside and she kind of grabs him he goes to hold it up and he's that's what he sees is her lying on the ground with this looking elderly and looking strange and she's able to roll out of the way as he slams it down and yeah. that's when the spell kind of breaks yeah, and he that's just right. sees his wife crumpled on the ground yeah Kathy <laughs> yeah um, yeah that's right um, and uh, oh there's two more things here so Missy would sing so that's the daughter would sing constantly while in her room Whenever she left the room, she would stop singing, and upon returning, she would resume singing where she left off. So, basically, saying there that the only time she sang was in her room, but it was almost like she was possessed when she went in there. So, whenever she left, um, she would almost stop like mid mid song, and the moment she walked straight back in the room, it's almost like she had never left. She would pick up exactly that same point of the song. And carry on. Mm. Uh, they didn't really touch on that. I mean, she did sing a bit. Like, she did the talking to herself and singing stuff, but they didn't. She really was doing. A, uh, yeah, the, the 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 moment where the babysitter's locked in the uh, 
where she's locked in the closet <laughs> and we, we just keep on getting all of these all of these wide shots of the little girl and her face is just completely blacked out by shadows yes she really does become like quite like that is quite terrifying yes of and especially you know like the babysitter's like like you can just see blood. she's got bloody knuckles that she's banging on yeah 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 like the fact that she's in there for presumably a few hours until the family get home it's just uh like that's just like i think a really nice little set piece especially because it's left yeah it's not it, it doesn't have its own kind of the pink is her being locked and then she's just this whimpering mess on the inside. Yeah. When they find her, which I think is such a like a stronger, more resonating uh, uh, horror scene than if she was to like break out and go running out screaming. You know, it's just it's 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 more disturbing. But to be like, oh, she was in there for like four hours. Yes. For for, for a wedding's worth. Yeah, a that's wedding right. Receptions worth of time <laughs> like that. That is terrifying. Absolutely. If you, if you spend a wedding and a reception's worth of time stuck in a closet. Oh, yeah, no, no, exactly. You're like, Jesus, no wonder shit, her knuckles were bleeding. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and like, so just the, the last thing I'm going to say, because on this note, and I realised I just took a look at the time check too, we're, we're an hour and a half into this thing. I really don't want to cut anything out of this, so I do apologise to podcast listeners, but it just shows how how in depth this is, and how you can see how animated that Oscar and I are talking as we're talking about this, and the impact that this movie has had is such a cracking film. Um, but the last kind of thing is that it says here on one occasion, Kathy heard what sounded like a window being opened and closed through the sewing room door, even though she was sure no one was in there. And the reason I mention that is because apparently the sewing room is where there was a lot of hive of activity that occurred and when mm. Lorraine Warren did her paranormal investigation with her, her partner Ed um, when she walked into the sewing room she had a strong impact to that you know like she felt the presence in that room and she said this is this has a very negative association within this room um, and and she she believed that that's where all the where all the uh, the cent, the central point of basically where all the bad shit was happening. She said it's it, it stems from within here. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, which is which is uh, what we see. That's you know the first room that the priest yeah. goes into bless. That's, that's right. Yeah. That, I I think that's it. I may be mistaken, but where the kid gets his fingers jammed, I know that yeah, it could be right. George, yeah, or that's either that or it's their bedroom. I'm not 100 percent sure, but George definitely goes up and sees the flies in there, and yeah, there's there's stuff going on there. You know, I never trusted sewing, so <laughs> it's just further cemented my. Uh, it's I think the sewing was the evil thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's Ooh. right. Cool. Um, so look, I'm, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna try and wrap this thing up because, as I said, I don't, I don't want us to be kind of too kind of bogged down, and I, would, I do apologise. Hopefully, you guys have found what our ramblings fascinating and interesting as we've delved into this. And I know we've kind of come at it from a historical point of view rather than the the plot device that that was told through the amateur horror. Um, I do want to say that I just kind of had a quick look. So it did 
churn at least another 19 following films this all based around the Amityville stuff wow um, the most recent of which was the Amityville Murders which actually goes back to the centres more on the um, the original killings that took place in the house and the story around Ronald DeFeo Jr um, the fourth one which was called Amityville 4 The Evil Escapes was actually uh, written and directed by Sandra Stern who wrote this the, the one we're talking about um, which I thought was kind of interesting in itself yeah so yeah so um, obviously in the climax of the film like I said it, it does it does end with all this stuff kind of happening the, the family gets out as we said um, and they kind of escape uh, in their little uh, and they just drive off and that's kind of how how the film ends too um, so it is very uh, going back to the fact that we were saying there is this kind of character driven piece um, and it does centre around the you know primarily the mother and the father as we said um, but we do kind of end it as it should do like and so we're kind of left of this whole thing of knowing that it's based on supposedly real events that have occurred um, and we're kind of left at the point where the story would end if, if they didn't kind of continue that journey um, I do want to add add to it that apparently and again I read this somewhere and I don't know where I picked it up but apparently George Lutz did kind of try he kept trying to get more media focus on this and he did say um, because no, no one who lived in the house after the Lutzes experienced any paranormal activity whatsoever yeah. um, and George Lutz did say that he felt like whatever it was followed them when they left so it's indicating that that's a bit of a get out of jail free card. Uh, sure. In that, like, yeah, that that's why no one else experienced any kind of paranormal activity in the house. Because, it, again, a bit like it's insidious, isn't it? Where it follows them, the film insidious, it follows, the entity follows them. It's the same kind of thing that he's saying, is <sighs> that it followed them wherever they went. Um, so yeah, so there you go. So that's kind of, I and mean, I know we kind of gloss around the stuff, kind of more come at a, a historical point of view. But have you got any other words or thoughts that you want to add that we may not have touched on there, Oscar? Not particularly. Uh, I feel like we've we've definitely. I mean, you know, the the time code speaks for itself. We've we've really yeah. chewed into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I I really think I was even just kind of like uh, glancing just then because we're talking about the connection with the shining. Yeah, but I mean, both both the books came out the same year. It yeah. just seemed to be like, uh, uh, it's it's great. It really is. I feel like a, a cornerstone of certainly the haunted house yeah. genre. Yeah. Um, not only with its connection with American folklore and, and and having this place within the psyche where it really was a phenomenon, whether whether it actual supernatural or you know, like in any case, it had a profound effect on on like the American people and and, and just like 100%. horror in general. I mean, you know, you're watching like, uh, uh, you know, with the release of like the Haunting of Hill House and, and yeah, you know, yeah. coming out on Netflix and kind of, uh, kind of that being the the next and probably the freshest take on the Haunted House movie, which yeah. is a very tired like 
particularly uninspired like horror genre, uh, like subgenre. I think it yeah. can be kind of hokey, and you know, I think like Amityville, The Shining, you know, but like those are really strong entries yes. into not just that genre, but in horror in general. And yeah, it really it's 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 worth looking at. I think it. I think it, for the most part, it really does hold up. With yeah, fantastic I agree. Performances. Yeah. That that just stellar directing and and the writing, which is just a lot more sophisticated than you just than I myself expected going back into it. Yeah. I was expecting a lot more kind of hokey acting and just kind of like moments, you know, for me to kind of laugh and also appreciate as it being of the time and yeah, of yeah. you know the kind of piece. But it's it's not. It's it's really naturalistic. And, yeah. You know, for, for a lot of for a lot of it, especially Margot Margot uh, Kiddo. Um, oh my god! I'll just every time I'll just watch it for her. She's just <laughs> so, she's just so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent agree with you there. Yeah, and I I would definitely recommend this movie. As I said, particularly after I, I rewatched it recently, and and I'm just like, yeah, this is this is good. Um, it does still stand strong today, um, and I think, it, and I, I I'm repeating myself, but it does come back to that it's so rich. The material is so rich. It's there's a lot there's a lot happens in it, um, but it's very well written uh, as I said in the screenplay to kind of weave all that stuff together and make it uh, believable and consistent within what's what's happening to these mm. this family as they slowly become unhinged. Um, yeah, it's great. Cool, man. Well, I think that's probably us. Um, we should probably bow out. Um, as I said, I, I hope uh, the podcasters out there kind of enjoyed our journey. And if you've got anything else you'd like to add to the uh, the folklore that uh, surrounds Amityville, maybe you're from Amityville and you're listening in on this and have some comments about the, the actual house and stuff, let us know. i um, love to hear from you. Until then, um, keep on listening to our podcast as we turn out some more of the uh, classics um, as we delve into them. Um, I'm your host, Saul Murty, and I was joined by Oscar Jack. Let's get out. You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Music supplied by Peter Nezik. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.